This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Dear Father, as we come before you this morning, we pray that as we come to our series on the six steps of talking about Jesus, uh, you really help to help us in our hearts to change our mindset in terms of evangelism, in terms of seizing opportunities to share the gospel and uh, to really be praying for our friends and relatives, our colleagues and uh, our classmates so that they truly will be saved. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, I once heard a pastor say that uh, when he preaches on two topics, he's sure that uh, the congregation will feel guilty and they will feel troubled. And uh, today we're going to be preaching on those two topics. And <clears throat> the topics are prayer and evangelism. Because you can't help but read about or hear about prayer and evangelism and not sort of think about how you're inadequate about it. And I feel the same way myself. I remember when I was at theological college, I had a Fijian friend. His name was Ma'afu. He's a huge guy, right? He's bigger than any of us here. And he used to wake up every morning and pray at 5 a.m. Okay, so, uh, you know, I was very encouraged but yet very challenged by what he used to do. When you think about evangelism, you know, I'm sure many of us feel bad about uh, the number of people we've evangelized. So we know people who, you know, are a lot better at evangelism than we are. But as we look at today's passage, uh, it really speaks about prayer and evangelism. But it sort of speaks of it not so much as we have to wake up at 5 a.m. to pray like my friend Ma'afu, or neither do we have to all be evangelists like Billy Graham, but it does remind us in a very strong way that prayer and evangelism should be and must be part of the Christian life. Now, because we are still like parachuting our way in the middle or actually coming to the end of Colossians, it's very important for us to read it within its context. So, uh, in a very fast snapshot, uh, Colossians really begins in chapter 1, and it, it speaks, or Paul speaks to the Christians of Colossae by telling them that they have received all things in Jesus Christ. Like, they don't need anything else. All they need is Jesus Christ, right? Because through Jesus' body, physical body through death, they have been reconciled, and they are now holy in God's sight, without blemish and free from accusation. So that's chapter 1 in a snapshot. In chapter 2, it warns the Colossian Christians that they are in danger. Okay, and what is the danger? The danger is that they are having this thing called Gospel Plus. So they have Jesus now, they receive Jesus, but there are people in their churches, there are other Christians in their midst, maybe they are, don't know what they're doing, they're listening to other people, where they are tempted to have Jesus Christ plus something else. So it says there, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. And in chapter 2, 18, it says, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great details about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. Okay, so, the next slide. So basically, they were being tempted to add on to their faith in Jesus things like food laws, or religious ceremonies, or special days, or additional secret knowledge of angels and heavenly beings. Okay, so you understand 
where the first couple of chapters of Colossians is going, right? So in chapter 3, it then goes on, oh, that's a, yep. so in chapter 3, it then goes on and, and, and continues this theme about how um, they are to walk. Okay, so the theme of walking, or actually in your Bibles, you don't see it as walking, right? It's, just, it's the word walk, but it's the word live or act in your Bible. Uh, in the Bible, it talks about how, in the book, Colossians chapter 3, about how now that they have been raised with Christ, now they must set their things, their minds on things above, not earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And this theme is, is followed through from what we've read in other parts of Colossians where it talks about how you know you must live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing the knowledge of God, being strengthened with power according to His glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. Okay, so again, uh, in the next slide, it talks about how uh, they are to continue to, to, to keep walking in Jesus Christ now that they are united with Christ. Okay, so now we have the background to Colossians. And now we turn to chapter 4. So chapter 4, basically, it is in two separate uh, instructions in verse 2 to 4. Sorry, 2 to 6, right? And the, the first part is all about prayer. And the second part is all about evangelism. Now, if you look at this passage... Um, you can see how, in many ways, it, it draws on all the themes that it, we looked at in chapter 1, 2, and 3, right? About how you walk and, and about prayer. So it says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open the door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, as we read this chapter, we're not saying here, God is not telling us that prayer and evangelism are two things meant for super elite, holy, holy Christians. Because within the context of Colossians, if you look at this uh, picture I draw you on the next slide, it sort of says that, you know, if you, as you set your mind on things above, as you walk in Christ, as you are united in Jesus Christ, so you must pray and so you must evangelize. And this passage here actually makes it very clear because it talks about how we are to be devoted to prayer. Okay, devoted to prayer. Now this passage here, it's not telling us the techniques of praying, you know. So a few years ago, um, the next slide, there's a very popular book, you know, The Prayer of Jabez, but nowadays the fat has died out, right? You, so, you know, you don't see The Prayer of Jabez very much anymore. But this was like the in thing many years ago. And The Prayer of Jabez was all about techniques. You pray these special words, you pray The Prayer of Jabez, you pray it with a special, uh, you know, at a time every morning, and you pray it, Every, you know, 50 days or something, there's special things will happen, God will listen to you. But, but this passage here is not about techniques. It's about the attitude, right? The attitude. And the attitude here says is to be devoted to prayer. Okay, so to be devoted to prayer. Now, if you look in your Bibles, it says there in verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer. 
Now, the devote here is, is a strong verb of imperative instruction, it's a command. Okay, so there are actually two commands in this section, which you may have noticed earlier on, or highlighted, right? To, one, the first one is to devote yourself to prayer, and the second one is to be wise, right? So, you must devote yourselves to prayer as part of walking in Christ, as part of being united in Christ, as part of setting your minds on the things above. But what does it mean to be devoted? What does it mean to be devoted? Now, I guess it shows my age, right? Because when I think of the word devote, I, I, I think of the first movie I think I ever saw. Uh, my grandfather brought me to watch Grease. Okay, so for the older people, you know what the movie Grease is, right? And I remember watching it in this small cinema on Thompson Road which is no longer there, which is now replaced by the community centre, right? And in the movie Grease, one of the famous songs was Hopelessly Devoted to You, right? And when you think of the word devote, it's the idea of giving yourself to something, right? That's what it means to be devoted, right? You give yourself to somebody or something. So what do we give ourselves to? I know that there's some people in church who tell me that, you know, uh, they, they, they take days off to watch Korean drama. Okay, so they're devoted to Korean drama, right? Some people are devoted to, to sport. Some people are devoted to different hobbies and things like that. The Bible here very sharply, I suppose, speaks to us and says, devote yourselves to prayer. Uh, it doesn't mean that you can't watch Korean drama or do sport, but it means that you, you have to give yourself to praying. You have to give yourself to prayer. It means that you engage your, your mind, engage your will, you set aside time for it, because this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to walk in Christ. Now, as we did for our responsive reading earlier on in uh, the service, uh, Jesus gave a parable in Luke chapter 18, about the parable of the unjust judge. Okay, this one is popularly known. The parable of the unjust judge. It speaks about how there's an unjust judge, but yet, because the widow keeps pestering the judge, the judge finally relents and gives her justice. And it contrasts this with God, who's a good and loving God, and says that we should have the same attitude as the widow and keep, not pestering God, but, but God wants us to keep going to Him, to pray to Him. But for me, the key is verse 8, right? It says, However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? Because the natural human condition is that we lack the ability to persevere in prayer. You know, we like the ability, instead of being hopelessly devoted to prayer, we are hopelessly t- tempted to give up on prayer. Because prayer is a difficult thing. Prayer doesn't come naturally. Now, I think watching TV comes naturally. Playing video games comes naturally. Uh, you know, wasting time on uh, our social media, that comes naturally. But praying is very difficult, you know. I confess myself, you know, you sit down and prayer. And uh, after about a few minutes, you start thinking, your mind starts wandering about all these various things. You, 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 you know, you, you think you've been praying a long time, you look at your clocks, only been five minutes. 
It's like you, it's hard to do. But the Bible tells us that we must be devoted to prayer. We must give ourselves over to prayer. Now, if you look in this passage here, verse 12, on, in the, which is later on in the book, Colossians, if you look up here, there's a very strange, uh, like almost uh, side note, where Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I wonder whether you've actually actually ever just even stopped for a moment to look at this. Because, you know, if you read Colossians, by the end of it, you're like, oh, okay, it's just a little aside, right? But what a strange phrase that is to wrestle in prayer. Uh, I don't, I've never really wrestled before. Um, the closest I've come is when, you know, my, my little boys, when they were really young, whenever they wanted to play, I always asked them, I said, what do you want to do, guys? They said, let's wrestle. Right, let's wrestle on the bed. So what they would do is they'll try to wrestle me on the bed, and I, you know, when they're very young, it's very easy, like because they're so small, right? And they're just like little monkeys crawling over you. But then they came a stage where as they got bigger and bigger, it was very very hard to wrestle with them, right? Because because they were getting stronger and stronger, and you really have to put effort and uh, you know and really try to defend yourself so you don't get injured, right? But that's the picture of wrestling. Right? So the picture here that that Paul actually wants to bring out is the ancient uh, sport of wrestling. You know, the Olympics. So we're not talking about, you know, the, the fake wrestling that you see on TV where, you know, there are all these people in funny suits, right? But it's talking about the Olympic wrestling, you know, in, in the Olympics where people wrestle and it's actually a, a, like a sport from Greece where you can see they're really concentrating, right? They're really struggling. They're really striving. And that's the picture that that Paul actually has when he says Epaphras is wrestling in prayer for you. It's, an, it's, it's a picture where when you are praying, it's, it's, a, it's, it's difficult. It's a struggle. It's, it requires effort. Right? It's not like, you know, uh, prayer is something where you're sitting by the beach and having your coconut juice, right? It's like prayer is something which requires effort and devotion and you need to actually work at it. And that's what Paul is saying that we must do. Uh, when we pray, we must put in effort. We must wrestle with prayer. But he goes on to say, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Now, why, why are we to be watchful? Uh, does that mean that we pray with our eyes open, right? making sure that you know, no one comes and attacks us? Well, I think that we need to kind of go outside of Colossians to give us the idea of, of being watchful. So there are many parts of uh, the Bible where Jesus talks about how we need to be watchful. And that watchfulness usually comes in the context of judgment coming. Right? So as judgment is coming, be watchful and know the time. So Matthew chapter 24 Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know at what day the Lord will come, but understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. 
So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Again in Matthew chapter 13 it says, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know what, when that time will come. It is like a man going away when he, he leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster, rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. And it's the same in the book of Revelation. Okay. Now, I think that that's what Paul has in mind. As we struggle in prayer, as we are devoted to prayer, we are to pray with a spirit of watchfulness. Now, that means that we are to pray with one eye on the return of Jesus and the judgment that comes. Right? That is that is to inform the attitude of our prayers. I think that's a, a radical thing to say. Because when I reflect on my prayers, I'm always praying for worldly things without really thinking about Jesus' return. I'm praying about health. I'm praying about uh, you know, material things. I'm praying about worries and concerns, uh, interpersonal issues. But here you notice God says prayer is to be associated with the watchfulness that comes from expecting Jesus to return. So I'm not saying here, and I, I, the rest of the Bible is not saying that we shouldn't pray for things that worry us. But if we only pray for our exams, or for material things, or things that just relate to this earth, then we're not praying as we should, as people who walk in Christ. Because as we walk in Christ, as we pray, we must be thinking and aware of the return of Jesus. And what that means is we, we need to pray for salvation. We need to pray for spiritual growth. We need to pray for evangelism. Because these are the most important things, right? That's what the Bible is telling us here. I remember my grandmother's house, since torn down many years ago, in the house she had this a similar prayer. You know, you go to a lot of her people's houses, you have like kitchen prayers or bless this house prayers. Do you, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I'm sure you've seen it, right? You go to people's houses, you can see. There's, I think there's nothing wrong with these prayers. But you notice these prayers, in a sense, are not prayers which are watchful prayers. Because it's not a prayer which is prayed with the return of Jesus in mind. It's very much like, okay, bless my house now, bless our relationships in this kitchen, bless all these things. But prayer, in this passage in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, is about prayer with an eye to the future, to the future return of Jesus. And that's why it says prayer, pr devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Now, uh, that's the translation in the NIV. So, for those of you who are using the New International Version, even the new one, it says, be watchful and thankful. But I think actually, when you look at the original language, it's closer to 
the NIV, the ESV or the NSB translation, which is your watchful with the with thankfulness or your alert with the attitude of thankfulness. The reason is because as we link back to what is said earlier in Colossians, we are already in Christ, so we know that we are saved. Uh, we know that Jesus Christ has died for us and we have been redeemed and holy. So when Jesus returns, we will appear with him in glory. Right? We, are, we are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints. Okay, is it up there? Yeah. So, we pray with watchfulness, knowing that Jesus returns, but we are not scared of Jesus' return. We are thankful and we are grateful to Jesus because we know that when He returns, it is a glorious day for us. We will be, we'll be taken up to heaven. We will receive our inheritance. Now, somebody mentioned to me a few weeks ago, he said, you know, we are, we are having these uh, classes on how to read the Bible. They said, oh, you know, uh, Andrew, when you're preaching, why don't you be more explicit about how we're to read the Bible? So, you, you know what I just did there, right? So, here we are, we have a passage which it says, you know, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. But, how do we know why we're watchful? How do we know why we're thankful? Well, the way we do so is we, we, we look at other parts of the Bible, specifically in Colossians, to see what we have to be thankful for. Well, we are thankful because we know that when Jesus returns, the earlier parts of the context of Colossians tell us that we are joyful because we know that we have received our inheritance. We know that we are already in Him in glory. Okay, so that's the way that we understand the different parts of the Bible and what each word means. Now, because we devote ourselves to prayer, being watchful with an attitude of thankfulness, Paul then says in verse 3 and 4, Pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. See, the logic is very clear. As I'm mindful of Jesus' return, as the Colossian Christians are mindful of Jesus' return, Paul then says, because Christ is going to return, pray for his evangelistic work. Pray for hearts to be open. Now, I think this is very important because when we think of the missionary out there evangelizing in some you know world part of the world where there are not many Christians. At the end of the day, God is the one who opens the hearts of people so that the gospel message may be received and may actually bear fruit. Right? That's what we've learned in other parts of the Bible. Right? At the end of the day, God is the only one who converts people. God is the only one who opens hearts to the gospel message. So Paul's role is not the conversion. Paul's role is to speak the message clearly. That's what he says there. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. He doesn't ask to be entertaining. He doesn't ask to be amusing or funny or engaging. He prays for clarity. I think that's such an important message for us today. Uh, I was listening to two uh, talks recently, and uh, this pastor 
from Australia was making this quite profound point. And he said the problem today is, he said, is that a lot of people focus on apologetics. Okay, so apologetics is where I'm just explaining to you that Christianity is reasonable and logical. Right, so a lot of Christians, he said today, focus on apologetics. You know, like, uh, is it reasonable that there can be suffering in this world and there's still a God? Is it, is there, you know, reasonable or logical that there can be, you know, um, evil in this world and there's still a God? Or the relationship between science and the Bible? These are all apologetics and, you know, the hot topic of today is, you know, uh, yeah, for those of you who've been coming to the weddings recently, right, Andrew also is doing apologetics, right? He's trying to explain that actually the Christian view of marriage and male headship and female submission, these are, these are reasonable things that God wants us to do. They're logical things and it's acceptable uh, in terms of the way society looks at it. And then the, the big topic, of course, now is you know, same-sex relationships, all that sort of stuff, the Christian view of marriage. But this guy was saying in Australia that the problem is people just focus on apologetics, apologetics, apologetics. So, but apologetics is not evangelism. Right? So it is a, there's a difference. Apologetics is about, is about getting people to accept that Christianity is reasonable. But it doesn't make them Christians. For them to be Christians, you need to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. You need to talk to them about sin. You need to talk to them about judgment. You need to talk to them about Jesus' death on the cross. You need to talk to them about grace. I think that's very important, right? Because that's why Paul says that he may proclaim Christ clearly. So Tim Keller, I can't remember, someone told me recently, uh, and it's a, you know, he said in one of the books, he's in New York, right? So New York is the place where uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, it's like the forefront of postmodernism, pluralism, uh, same-sex freedom, all that sort of stuff. So people come to him as a pastor and say, you know, Tim, you know, what does Christianity think about same-sex marriage or homosexuality? So then Tim Keller will say, Actually, that's the wrong question, right? The right question is, did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Because if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then it really doesn't matter what Christianity says about same-sex marriage. Now, you notice what Tim Keller has done here. Because it's, 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 you know, it's, 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 it's very smart what he's done, right? So, instead of trying to go into the apologetics of same-sex marriage, or, you know, it's reasonableness of the Christian view of marriage, which is apologetics, he brings it back to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly. You know, he wants to bring back the topic to the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ, and the cross. Because if Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross, if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then who cares what Christianity says about all sorts of things, right? It really doesn't matter all. So that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying he wants them to pray that he may proclaim Christ clearly as he should. Now the next uh, verse, two verses then, is all about evangelism. So in verse 3 and 4, it talks about Paul and his ministry. Verse 5 and 6 then talk about how he expects 
the Colossian Christians to act. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned of salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, devote yourselves to prayer was an imperative. Be wise is also an imperative. It's a command. What does it mean to be wise in the way you act towards outsiders? Now, again, this word act is the word walk. Right? So he said that, you know, in the book of Colossians, he keeps using the word walk. Right? So when you are wise in your walk, you will walk and live in a godly way, a holy way. It comes back to chapter 1, right, the next slide, okay, and chapter 3, right? In the sense where you are wise in the way that you live or walk, worthy of the Lord, pleasing Him in every way. Verse 6, just then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as, as Lord, continue to live or walk in Him. So here in chapter 4, is the same thing. Be wise in the way that you walk or you live towards outsiders. So in that sense, I think as Christians, we must walk wisely in Christ. Because you can't evangelize when you live in an ungodly way. Uh, I remember when I was working in uh, HP Hewlett-Packard before, there was this Christian fellow that I know, and he used to make dirty jokes frequently. Sexual jokes, right? Then every Easter, he would invite people to go to his church. But nobody would go. And then people would come and complain to me about, hey, you know your Christian friend, right? Making all these sexual jokes, which obviously are completely inappropriate and the women don't appreciate it as well. And then at the same time, you want to invite people to come to church during Easter time. Of course, it's such a bad witness, and I used to wish that, you know, he wouldn't call himself a Christian. And I thought, probably better if you wouldn't invite people to your church or so. Because by your behavior, you lack wisdom. And, and you're, in your walk, you lack godliness. And therefore, you can't evangelize people. But I think that the wisdom, the next slide, Mink, um, is not so much just walking in a godly way. I think we need to be wise more than just walking in a, in a godly way. It is to be wise in the way of making the most of every opportunity. Now, making the most of every opportunity, if you look at it just by itself as a phrase, it, it's, it's actually a, uh, 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 the idea of getting the best deal. Getting the best deal. And we, you know, as Singaporeans, uh, uh, we know about getting the best deal. Right? It's like, uh, you know, why do we, oh, I don't know about you, but, but, but why do we go to, like, you know, Lazada or Shopee or Carousel and compare prices? Why do we go to Scoot or Air Asia or Jetstar and try to get the best price? You know, or why do we go to Amazon or Book Depository to get the best deal? You know, when you go to the shops in Bangkok, or, you know, why are you haggling? Because you want the best deal, right? You're getting the, seizing the best opportunity, the best business opportunity. Well, here, the Bible uses that, that 
phrase of getting the best deal and applying it to evangelism. Saying, be wise in the way you work towards outsiders. Get the best deal or seize or make the most of every opportunity. It's the idea of snapping up opportunities to share Jesus Christ. Now, I wonder whether if we applied it to our lives, are we as anxious or as uh, diligent in looking for opportunities to share the gospel as we are in looking for the best deal that we can get in terms of our airfare? Are we as diligent in terms of looking at our friends and and the conversations we have to to look for opportunities to share Jesus Christ as we are in terms of getting and seizing the opportunities of uh, getting the lowest price. Because that's that's the picture that the Bible is giving us today. Uh, I remember when I was younger, before the days of internet, my mother used to get the newspaper and you know the newspaper usually on the weekends especially you have all the deals for all the supermarkets selling vegetables and everything. Then you go, oh wow, very cheap the eggs at this place. Okay, so we will go all the way buy eggs here. Or oh, very cheap, you know the vegetables here. Or you know this electrical shop is having this sale. We've got to go. And that's the idea here, right? It's like you're you're scanning your 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 relationships, you're scanning your your connections and thinking, who can I share the gospel with? You know, where can I have meaningful conversations with these people? What, what's, what life situation is this person at that I can share the gospel with? And the passage then ends in verse 6. It says, uh, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Okay, now this, this sort of talks about our conversation being characterized by two things. Uh, full of grace, and season of salt. But yet, each of these terms are very loaded, right? They're, they're like, they're, they're, they've got lots of weight and meaning to it. So, full of grace can be the content of our speech. Okay, so the content of what we talk about is about God's grace. Because earlier on, on the next slide, yeah, we already said 1 chapter 1 verse 6 are all over the world. This gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it, understood God's grace and all its truth. So, our conversation and content has God's grace in it. There's God's grace in it, in Jesus Christ. But it also talks about the manner of our speech, because we speak in a gracious manner, in a gentle manner. Someone once said, you can't argue someone into Christ, right? I mean, argue as in get into an angry confrontation and, uh, you know, argue so that you're blue in the face and then the person becomes a Christian. No, that doesn't work, right? You, you, you speak gently and graciously to them. Then our, our speech also must be seasoned with salt. And again, seasoned with salt can mean a few things. So, salt uh, in the ancient world primarily was used as a preservative. We, we see that today, right? So, like you have, uh, you have salt fish. You know, you, 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 the reason why you have salt fish is not not so that it tastes better, but because the fish will keep right. Then you have a cured salt, you know, like parma ham, and so some of these pictures you might want to eat 
after sorry. So you know you have like Iberico ham. So all these things you can you can keep. You don't have to put it in the fridge. So salt stops corruption, physical corruption. So in the same way our speech in a sense stops corruption and preserves in this corrupted world. Okay, so again, uh, in, in um, the next slide, all right, it talks about how when we speak, when we used to live in a certain way, we used to speak with anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, and lying. But now we don't speak that way, right? Because we are salty. We are salty. We, we don't... We don't corrupt the world with our language. We, we preserve, in a sense, we are salty. We speak truth when there's lies. We don't get angry and rage. We don't slander other people. We don't have filthy language. But salt also is flavorsome, right? So salt, I mean, so many things actually require salt. I, I, when I went to Japan last year, I think, for my holidays, I, I told my family after a while, I said, actually, in Japan, right, uh, everything is salted. I said, you know, when you eat teppanyaki, it's got salt in it. You know, it's like there's no chili here. It's just salt and pepper, right? So someone said that, uh, oh, the next slide, yep. Oh, all the chips. So, you know, you, like, you eat chips, right? And french fries, if you ever eat chips and french fries with zero salt, it's like terrible, right? So can you imagine, like, you go to McDonald's and you ask for french fries with no salt. It tastes terrible. It's like, it's just, it's just oily potato. Right? Um, so in the same way, in our speech, we are to commend Christ by talking about Jesus in a, in a positive, flavorsome way. Right? Um, I was watching this movie just last week, but I wouldn't regularly recommend it. It's called The First Reform. Right? It's like, so I got it on Blu-ray, but it's just quite depressing because the, it's about this pastor, right? And this pastor has like no joy in his life at all. Um, it's kind of like a bit of a caricature. Lah. And I told my wife, I said, well, this guy, if you watch this guy right in his real life, you think, well, it's really like being a Christian is just really gloomy and sad and a burden. And I was thinking, well, actually, as Christians, we're not to be artificially happy all the time, right? Like, you know, Ned Flanders and The Simpsons. But... But in a sense, we are to commend Christ in, in the way that we speak, in the way that we live. To show that, well, we have something that other people should want. So someone once said, you know, you, you can't bring a horse, you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Then someone said, actually, you, 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 can, you can make the horse drink, right? By giving him salt. Okay? So in a sense, when we, when we, when we talk to people, we are to make the Christian faith, attractive. We're not to say that, obviously, if you become a Christian, you become rich, right? I mean, that's not, that's not what the Bible is about. But, but in many ways, we can seize opportunities, we can be wise by sharing the gospel and making it attractive to people rather than telling people a false picture of how it's such a gloomy, gloomy thing. right? Because in many ways, actually, when you think about it, uh, being a Christian is a very joyful thing, right? You understand the world, there is meaning to why you do things, there is a purpose in a purposeless world, we have fellowship with one another, we have a greater community in a world where people are actually very lonely, 
and very uh, down because it's hard to find friends. Right? We, we, we know that even if we die, uh, we will go to heaven. So there are lots of things in which we can speak of Christ in a, in, in a way that is attractive. Now it goes on, the last part says, Let your conversation be always full of grace, season of salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, this is a very famous uh, pastor called Dick Lucas from St. Helens in England, and he actually said uh, this point that there is a, there's a subtle difference between what Paul is doing in verse 3 and 4, uh, between what the normal Christians are doing in verse 5 and 6. Right? So in verse 3 and 4, Paul and Timothy, the apostles, are going out there doing direct evangelism. Right? They're, they're, they're out there, and their main role is 24-7 uh, doing evangelism. But he said that for us as Christians and for the Colossian Christians, we are doing responsive evangelism or like lifestyle evangelism. So we are not like Paul doing evangelism 24 hours, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. But within the context that we live in, we are always ready to seize opportunities to share the gospel, to tell people of Jesus Christ, to proclaim it clearly. So there's this thing called ambush evangelism, right? So, you know, it's like, you know, people come up to you in the street and ask you whether you want to do a survey or, you know, you go to the hawker center and you share a gospel tract. But the reality is, actually, if you think of your own conversion experience, most of the times you actually come to Christ because a friend talked to you about Jesus Christ. It's because a friend uh, found an opportunity in your relationship to share the gospel with you. And that's what this passage is about. It's about responsive evangelism, lifestyle evangelism, where we bring Christ to people's lives within the context of our relationships and our lifestyle with other people. So as we look at this passage, evangelism, lifestyle evangelism, responsive evangelism, is not an option. It is a command. Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders, make the most or sneeze, seize and snap up every opportunity. That's what we must be doing. So in conclusion, um, I've got these statistics. Eh? Oh, I didn't... Um, okay, sorry. I didn't, I didn't uh, animate it, but it doesn't matter. Uh, you can see that very sadly, and I'm sure this is true for us as a church too, we are delinquent and we are failing in obeying God's instruction to be wise in the way that we act towards outsiders, making the most of every conversation. Because uh, these are statistics from America, la, but I think we are, we're not that far away. So, about one in two, or, or actually less than one in two Christians actually um, feel comfortable discussing their faith. Right? So, even if someone came up to you and said, oh, you know, I, I don't have any meaning in life, I'm very worried about dying, I don't know whether my soul will go to hell. Only one out of every two Christians will feel comfortable sharing their faith with someone else and pointing them to Jesus Christ. Right? Um, but even worse than that, only like one out of ten people actively are looking for opportunities to share the gospel with people. That's really tragic when you think about it. Actually, the Presbyterians are the, even worse than average. Huh? Yes, that's right. And the highest actually are the charismatics. In my own life, before I became a Christian, I think it was the charismatics who evangelized me the most. 
I, I'm not sure about you, but I think the charismatics are quite charismatic in their evangelism, right? They 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 are quite on lah. I don't know what it is about them, but they are quite enthusiastic. They are quite happy to want to share their faith view. But for for us as Presbyterians or other denominations, uh, we are not. And this table shows us how far we are failing in terms of walking in Christ, be united in Christ, having our minds watchful of Jesus' return. So I hope that in, a, in some small, small way, looking at today's passage, you will take God's instruction, command seriously, that you must be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders, the non-Christians, to make the most of every opportunity, to seize the opportunities, to snap up the opportunities to share Jesus with people. Because that's what God expects of us now that we are in Christ. Right? It's not 1 out of 10, it should be 10 out of 10 of us should be looking for opportunities and, and, and 10 out of 10 of us should be open to sharing Jesus Christ with people. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Uh, dear Father, as we come before you today, uh, help us to be devoted to prayer, to wrestle in prayer like Epaphras did, to give ourselves to prayer, uh, to have the attitude of being prayerful with watchfulness, knowing that your Son Jesus is going to return at any time, and that we should be praying for the things that really matter. Dear Father, help us to pray with watchfulness, with the spirit of thankfulness, because we know that we ourselves are saved. We pray for the many missionaries around the world who have been called and have given their lives to bring the gospel in many far-fung places around the world, where even right now they are endeavouring to plant the seed of the gospel in difficult grounds all over the world. We pray for ourselves that we will be wise in the way that we act towards outsiders, that we would make the most of every opportunity, that we would seize and snap up opportunities to share Jesus as much as we would seize and snap up opportunities for, to get the best deal for our flights, our books, our consumer purchases, that we will be full of grace in our speech and season of salt as well. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bttc.sg.